Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts Couch to 80k Writing Bootcamp Week 3, Day 4. My name's Tim Clare and today we're summoning demons. This is one of my favourite narrators, the demon screw tape from C.S. Lewis's novel The Screw Tape Letters. The novel comes in the form of letters from the demon screw tape to his nephew, Wormwood, offering advice on how to tempt the human his nephew has been assigned away from God and into damnation. I just want to read you an extract because I love this character and the lens through which he views humans and all their interactions. My dear Wormwood... I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother, but you must press your advantage. The enemy will be working from the centre outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard, and may reach his behaviour to the old lady at any moment. You want to get in first. Keep in close touch with our colleague, Clubos, who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you in that house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance, daily pinpricks. The following methods are useful. 1. Keep his mind on the inner life. He thinks his conversion is something inside him, and his attention is therefore chiefly turned at present to the states of his own mind, or rather to that very expurgated version of them which is all you should allow him to see. Encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. 2. It is no doubt impossible to prevent his praying for his mother, but we have means of rendering the prayers innocuous. Make sure that they are always very spiritual, that he is always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. Two advantages will follow. In the first place, his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins, by which, with a little guidance from you, he can be induced to mean any of her actions which are inconvenient or irritating to himself. Thus you can keep rubbing the wounds of the day a little sorer while he is on his knees. The operation is not at all difficult and you will find it very entertaining. In the second place, since his ideas about her soul will be very crude and often erroneous, he will, in some degree, be praying for an imaginary person, and it will be your task to make that imaginary person daily less and less like the real mother, the sharp-tongued old lady at the breakfast table. In time, you may get the cleavage so wide that no thought or feeling from his prayers for the imagined mother will ever flow over into his treatment of the real one. I have had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. 3. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And, of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. 4. 
In civilised life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper, the words are not offensive, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow in the face. To keep this game up, you and Globos must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. Your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can both go away convinced or very nearly convinced that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply ask her what time dinner will be and she flies into a temper. Once this habit is well established, you will have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offence is taken. And just because I can, here's a bit from later on uh, that is just one of my favourite bits of writing. Being part of the infernal bureaucracy, Screwtape, of course, refers to the devil as our father below and God as the enemy. My dear Wormwood, I have been thinking very hard about the question in your last letter. If, as I have clearly shown, all selves are by their very nature in competition, and therefore the enemy's idea of love is a contradiction in terms, what becomes of my reiterated warning that he really loves the human vermin and really desires their freedom and continued existence? I hope, my dear boy, you have not shown my letters to anyone. Not that it matters, of course. Anyone would see that the appearance of heresy into which I have fallen is purely accidental. By the way, I hope you understood too that some apparently uncomplimentary references to Slubgob were purely jocular. I really have the highest respect for him, and, of course, some things I said about not shielding you from the authorities were not seriously meant. You can trust me to look after your interests, but do keep everything under lock and key. The truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being, they are distinct from him, their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy. When the creation of man was first mooted, and when, even at that stage, the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock-and-bull story about disinterested love which has been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. He implored the enemy to lay his cards on the table and gave him every opportunity. He admitted that he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. The enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview that our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself an infant distance from the presence with a suddenness which has given rise to the ridiculous enemy story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. 
Since then, we have begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if we ever came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to. Hypothesis after hypothesis have been tried and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, rich rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this, pursued and accelerated to the very end of time, cannot, surely, fail to succeed. If ever we came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. I think that's... One of the most beautiful lines I've ever read yet. It came from the mouth of a demon. So look, here's the deal. You've intercepted a missive from one demon to another. Only the demon they're writing to, the demon that they're giving advice to, this demon has been assigned to you. And their job is to stop you writing. They're a demon of the anti-muse. And the demon writing this letter to them, giving them advice, they're giving him, her or them advice on how to prevent the patient, that's you, from writing. How to sow discouragement, the times when the patient is weakest, the tricks they can use to draw you away should you ever get into that most dangerous position of being actually in front of the page. And if you should start to whisper it, establish a habit. What sort of tricks, subtle and diverse, can the demon employ to spoil it for you? So this letter it's going to of course start dear and then a suitable demony name for your creature of anti-inspiration and then the advice. I'll let you know when the 10 minutes is up. Got all that? Think you can do it? Ready? Go.
And that's it. Hopefully you've not only had some fun writing, but you've finally come face to face with the culprit behind all your struggles. Perhaps they even popped up while you were trying to write the letter itself, telling you it was a stupid exercise, telling you you need to take a break, telling you you should go downstairs and make a cup of tea and a biscuit and have another crack at it later, telling you you should put it aside and do it in the morning, saying, hey, 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 you don't need to do all this. You need to start work on your novel. I wonder what that demon said. Or perhaps... You ignored them, and to their frustration and horror, you wrote a huge and fulsome letter. But that's the great thing about demons, right? Once you spot them, they lose their power. In Buddhism, the demon Mara, uh, I, I'm not sure if he's technically a demon so much as a spirit, but he is roughly the equivalent of the Buddhist devil. Um, Mara appears to the Buddha at various points during the Buddha's quest for enlightenment, trying to tempt him away. From it. But what I find really interesting about the story is after their big climactic battle where the Buddha becomes enlightened under the Bodhi tree and Mara is like raining down this huge shower of arrows that the Buddha transforms into lotus blossoms. In the years that follow that climactic battle, um, Mara still appears to the Buddha. He keeps turning up as the Buddha's teaching. Only now, whenever Mara appears, the Buddha simply says... Mara, I see you. And Mara has no power. Speaking of which, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>